Father, you are unlike any other. You are incomparable, unattainable. We do not seek to be you. We seek to worship you. You made us sons and daughters by sending your son to die on Calvary. Now as we open the book, we realize these words are good pasture. So lead us, great shepherd, to feast in fields of truth. You are the revealer of hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. As a master craftsman knows a grain of wood, as a blacksmith knows iron, so you know our hearts. Please, please deliver us from our goodless good deeds, our prayerless prayers, our praiseless praise, our worshipless worship. Infuse our acts of devotion with meaning and life. To approach you, we are not worthy. We are not worthy. We are not worthy. But Christ is worthy. Jesus Christ is our plea. Jesus Christ is our clothing. He is our covering. As we are pleading our case, we are completely aware that Jesus is wrapping it in his righteousness and interceding for us. Jesus, we hated you and love the world, but now we refuse to love a world that crucified you. We refuse to cherish and adore the sin that caused you so much grief. Work in us profound and abiding repentance. Give us the fullness of godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves. And at the end of our repenting, we shall stand up and walk away with confidence, knowing that our prayers and tears could not suffice to pardon our sins, only the work of Christ. This is our corporate confidence. Amen. Amen. The Bible is unlike the average campaign press release. The Bible always tells the truth about its people. Even if you are not a Christian, you can't deny the stark honesty found in the Word of God. We have here one of the largest figures in the Bible. If there is a Mount Rushmore of people who follow God, this guy is on it. He led God's people as their king. He wrote songs about God. We have his biography in the scriptures. It's his unedited life story. No whitewashing, no hagiography, no glossing over the skeletons in his closet. Today we are viewing the shocking downturn of David. The Bible isn't embarrassed by this, and we shouldn't be either. After all, we're not just about to study David's sin with Bathsheba. We're about to face our own sin and our own ability to cover it up. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David 
remained at Jerusalem. In olden times, among the petty sovereigns of the East, spring was time for war. The wheat and barley ripening in the fields afforded food for the horses. The inclement weather of the winter months halted all hostilities, but when the heavy rains ceased, it was the season for war. When all the kings sally forth to battle. It is, if you like, in the words of Ecclesiastes, a time for war. The Israelites are battling the Ammonite aggression. They are 40 miles as the crow flies away from Jerusalem. All the eastern sovereigns have sallied forth, but one. His name, David. His calling, lead the people of God in battle. Adding an ellipsis to verse 1 helps us to see the flow. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. These are not throwaway lines. They are intended to inform us. David is in bed when he should be in battle. He was on the couch when he should be in the conflict. We find David on the sofa instead of in the skirmish. At a later date, David's army commanders will convince him to stay home rather than go to battle, lest he be singled out and killed. But that's not what's happening here. The narrator is making a point to show you that while other kings sally forth, David is sitting down. David has put down aggressions in every direction. His army engages in mop-up operation after mop-up operation. He's enlarged his boundaries to reach 60,000 square miles. He spent his entire life fighting, and he deserves a break. At least that's what he's telling himself. He's resting comfortably on his laurels, intoxicated with the years of success, basking, basking in his past heroic exploits. He's grown complacent. David, the warrior, has become David, the vacationer. Neglecting his duty as Israel's king, shirking his responsibility. He's grown stagnant. Stagnant waters always gather filth. David is idle. Idleness is not the need for regular rest. Idleness is no activity on purpose. David has put himself in a place where he could be tempted. This is the equivalent of staying up late at night browsing the internet. When David stayed home, he was in every way taking off the armor of God. And he will pay a bitter price for his carelessness. By not being where he was supposed to be, John Calvin said, David threw himself into Satan's net. Which leads us to this truth. One of the ways to stay out of sin is to stay busy in the work God has given you. It was a time for war when kings sallied forth and David wasn't found busy in the work God had given him. David's greatest temptation came after his largest blessings. Notice verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. 
And the woman was very beautiful. One scholar pointed out that excavations have revealed that eastern monarchs frequently built gardens on their palace roof with canopies or open-sided dining rooms and even bedrooms where they could enjoy the cool evening breeze. In the evening, a king would be able to walk around his rooftop garden and enjoy some privacy, safely above the streets where he could see his kingdom below. That's the scene. King David from his elegant mansion overlooking the lower abodes, the humble residents that surround his White House, His palace is built so high that he could look two to three blocks with ease. He's on a flat roof, which later I imagine he will regret as all those who install a flat roof on a building end up regretting. (laughs) As David overlooks his kingdom, the city of Jerusalem is filled with women and children walking in the streets below. All the men are at war except the elderly the palace guards, and the city security. From David's vantage point on the roof, he sees a woman on her roof. She's bathing, bathing in the moonlight. David is ravaged by her beauty. Kyle, how do you know she's beautiful? The narrator tells us. Only a select few women in the Bible are referred to as beautiful in appearance. This woman is in a small minority. Her curvy silhouette catches David's eye. First, just a glance that quickly became a gaze. On the roof at this moment, instead of looking away, he indulged himself. He didn't flee temptation, he fed it. He did not, as Job, make a covenant with his eyes. It's late in the day and his moral guard is down. Sin can strike at any time of the day, but always at the time when you're weakest. After an argument with your spouse, after a hard day with the kids, during a a prolonged stressful stretch at work, it's during the mundane weak moments that are dangerous. It, It wasn't David's first look that was sin. It was his second. The long, long second look. David opened the door and sin crept into his heart and settled there. Sin is always found reclining in a dark, chilly heart. Oh, David, oh, colossal king, able to conquer the world, but unable to resist temptation. David has been tempted before, tempted in different areas, sure, but stronger temptations than this one. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are filled with occurrences of David resisting sin. But Christian, just because your whole life you've been known to fight off temptation doesn't guarantee you will the next time. Past obedience is no guarantee of present faithfulness. Scholars say that David is 50 years old here. Men, women, in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, will you look at me? Many older people are falling prey to sexual sin. Finish well. Don't let your guard down. Your holiness still matters. 
Your commitment to Jesus is still vital. You're not home free until you're in New Jerusalem. And, and let me add this little piece of information. Don't jump ahead in the story. Right here, David committed sexual adultery. According to Jesus, Jesus said, if you look on a woman with sexual lusting, you have committed adultery in your heart. You can commit adultery without having intercourse. Lustful undressing with the eyes. Fantasizing in the mind, which is the largest sexual organ. You can engage in this through watching rom-coms or by reading romantic novels. It comes in many forms. David is a heart adulterer long before he is a body adulterer. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. David just did. He becomes enamored by watching her bathe. King David has become, notice the scene, the royal voyeur. Verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Oh, no. David is playing with fire. Why do you need to know about her? Why are you asking questions? Why are you searching that name on Instagram? It's just curiosity. You're not going to take it further? You're just the inquisitive type? I believe David thought it would end there. He would find out who she was, would, would have that curiosity met, and he would leave it alone and walk away. But sin never lets you walk away when you're still flirting with it. Sin lies to us that we can test drive it without having to make payments on it. Sin lies to us that we can keep it on a leash. But we soon find out we're the ones on the leash. David sent and called for a male assistant. He meets David on the roof. David says, who is that woman bathing in the moonlight? And whoever this assistant was, he deserves a medal. I love his answer. It's loaded with beware signs. Little verbal cues for David to stop. This is the daughter. Stop! Someone's daughter. This is not meat on a plate. A nameless person on a stage. This is someone's daughter. Let me specify even further. This is Eliam's daughter. And here's where it gets interesting. Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor. That means this is the granddaughter of David's spiritual advisor. One theologian points out, and I quote, this explains to us why Ahithophel will later abandon David and support Absalom's attempt to take the throne of Israel. He explains, I could never understand why Ahithophel, so near the end of his revered and respectable career, would suddenly leave David and actually tell Absalom how to kill his father. It finally made sense when I found this connection. End quote. Her grandfather is one of your spiritual advisors, King. Eliam, her father, is one of your 30 mighty men. The, the type A of all the type A's, the elite core, he's a senior in that group. He's out fighting the Ammonites as we speak. She's someone's daughter. She, she's someone's granddaughter, someone's daughter, someone's wife. 
Stop, stop, stop. These are obvious checks, verbal restraints. Her husband Uriah is also away fighting the Ammonites. You know him too, king. He's been at many state dinners. He's been in the palace. You put a medal around his neck. You shook his hand and promoted him to be in the special group of 30 as well. He's the most recent recruit to that group. Both men on the daily risk their lives to fight for you, king. Church, the fact that she was the wife of an elite soldier would have been evident by the close location of the other rooftop. David's warrior men had houses around the palace. Why were their houses around the palace? If, if you're coming after my king, you will have to go through me, my wife, and my children before you reach my king. It's unusual to identify a woman by both her father and her husband, but the assistant is throwing up stop signs. Does David obey the stop signs? Heed this warning. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, we're going to skip this parenthesis and come back to it. And he lay with her, then she returned to her house. Can you believe this? David, what are you thinking? That's the problem. Obviously, you are not thinking. It's the nature of sin to be intoxicating. You're not going to think straight. You could try to excuse David of his sin by saying certain physiological things are happening. Blood is rushing from one part of the body to the other. That, that's why he's going temporarily insane. Friend, God created physiology. So you, you can't use it to escape your responsibility for sin. Never mind a house full of wives and concubines. David says, I want that one. B but you have a whole palace full of women. But not that one. See, it's rarely about the sexual release. It's almost always about the desire for new, fresh, strange encounters. When the soldiers are away, the king will play. David sent his secret service agents to Bathsheba's house. The king wants to have you over, Bathsheba, for a candlelit dinner on the rooftop. She accepted she came up to the royal roof and the king went to bed with her. This is David's one night stand, his quick thrill, his hidden fling. But David, you're not just enjoying someone's body. You are tampering with your soul. God knows, I'm not sure David does, that sin deeply wounds you. Sin disintegrates, it cuts Every time, without fail. Had Bathsheba been unmarried, David would have simply added her to his harem. But she's got a man. So this will be a simple one-night stand. Her husband never has to know. Unless, verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the only words Bathsheba speaks in the narrative. Three words in English, I am pregnant. Two words in Hebrew, I prego. It took less than a month for Bathsheba to discover she's expecting a child. 
Now we know why the narrator put that little parenthesis in verse 4 that we skipped. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Hebrew scholars call this a circumstantial clause describing Bathsheba's condition at the time she came onto David's palace rooftop. The author here inserts this information because he wants us to know that when Bathsheba had come to David, she had just been purified ceremonially from her menstrual cycle, her monthly cycle. This was a, this was a ritual bath after the end of menstruation. This leaves no doubt that the child she carried was not her husband's. In no way could this have been Uriah's baby. You don't have a cycle during pregnancy. She was not with child prior to intercourse with David. Now David and Bathsheba were both God followers. They followed Yahweh. They were churchgoers. We know David's past experiences with God. That's been noted. But how do we know Bathsheba was a Yahweh follower? Because she's doing religious observances. The ceremonial bathing after menstruation was not for hygiene. It was commanded in the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 15. We know her husband Uriah was a converted to Yahweh Hittite. He changed his name to Uriah, which means Yahweh is my light. David is still walking around keeping up religious appearances as Israel's king. Isn't it deathly scary how we can go about in our religious exercises all the while living in secret sin? Doing what we can to keep up religious appearances. Sin makes you forget. During that intimate encounter, David wasn't filled with hatred of God, but forgetfulness of God. Verse 6, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Under the law of Israel, David and Bathsheba were to be executed. Adultery carried with it the death penalty. David had to do something quick. Rabbah, where they were fighting, was only 40 miles away, so he sends for Uriah. Uriah is in the bunker, dodging arrows, when suddenly a messenger dives in and says, King David wants you. Uriah made a run for it, and once he made it out of that tight predicament, he had to descend over 3,000 feet to the Jordan, cross it, and ascend another 3,000 feet to Jerusalem. Verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Now, Uriah just came home from the brutal, difficult conditions of the front lines. He's still in battle mode. He hasn't had enough time to shift to homeland living yet. He hears a boom, and he still ducks. You're safe now, Uriah. You're not on the battlefield anymore. Uriah is curious as to why the king is asking him these questions. He wants to know how the battle is going. I mean, we have messengers. That is their job to relay that type of information. Something is very unusual with this situation, and Uriah would have known that. Verse 8, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. David is hoping to pass the baby off as Uriah's. He's trying to get out of being the father. 
He's running away from fatherhood. He tells Uriah to go home and wash his feet. Now, this isn't an insult. This isn't, man, your feet are kicking. Go home and put those dogs in the shower. No, wash your feet was a euphemism for sexual intimacy. Go home and enjoy the marital bed. Uriah, I pulled you off the field so you can have a conjugal visit. David is misleading. He's lying. He's attempting to escape his sin. He wants to dupe, to deceive Uriah by appearing generous. Patterns of deception are instinctive in the sinning heart. David has gone full-blown damage control. Operation cover-up is in full motion. David is only concerned with self-preservation. Anything to conceal my sin. David says, go home, Uriah. Take a shower. Brush your teeth. Put on some deodorant. Play some Marvin Gaye. And enjoy the wife of your youth. Oh, and by the way, I'm sending some presents. A nice T-bone steak, three dozen roses, a heart-shaped box of chocolates, a bottle of the finest champagne, and some candles. Now, the palace staff who were gathering all these gifts, they knew what was going on. They saw Bathsheba slip in a month ago, and they saw her husband being called back from the field. This David and Bathsheba thing is more like an open secret at the White House. The, the palace whispers are starting to spread, but they don't whisper too loudly. They could get their heads chopped off. David and Uriah are having this conversation on the same rooftop where David had Uriah's wife. He points to Uriah's house. Go home. Just go there. And Uriah leaves. Uriah is just a few steps away from his house. And David is just a few steps away from freedom. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The sting of these words had to penetrate David's warrior heart. Uriah is saying something that old young David would have said in 1 Samuel. Uriah says, all my men are on the field. And they can't have conjugal visits with their wives. How could I? They are living on beans and rice. How could I eat a T-bone? They are living in tents. How could I have a roof over my head? I'm a soldier on duty, king. Soldiers in combat generally practice sexual abstinence. Intercourse was a source of ritual impurity and was avoided during military campaigns, especially Israelite military campaigns. David testified to this in 1 Samuel. 
David is tempting Uriah with sin. But Uriah's response, his reasons are not just loyalty to his team, that's commendable, but Uriah also has religious reasons. The chest of God, the ark, is out with the fighting men, and I need to be out there fighting for my God. It seems loyalty to the Lord is his cause. So he had good soldier reasons, he had good God-fearing reasons. This is the only time Uriah speaks. And he speaks about God. Now, is this a statement of Uriah's integrity? Or is this Uriah picking up on what's going on? Why am I the only one who gets to come back and be with my wife? This is quite a strange furlough. And showering me with attention and repeated offers to go home and be with my wife? Some scholars are convinced Uriah has figured this thing out. I'm not so sure. The irony here is pretty thick. Uriah is more loyal to the king's army than the king. I can't stay when my men are fighting. In other words, I can't be like you, king. When my men sally forth to battle, I sally forth with them. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank. So that David made Uriah drunk. And in the evening, Uriah went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. David brings Uriah to his table. His dinner table. His family table. Uriah eats with David. Mephibosheth is seated at this table. It's sad how a table of grace can be turned into a table of sin. And it can happen just that quickly, asked the church at Corinth. David has lost his calm, cool, and collected demeanor. He's in panic mode. Let me, let me pour you some liquor, Uriah. David, in a last-ditch effort, gets Uriah drunk. As it turns out, it's not hard to get soldiers drunk. A theme that still runs true today. David is hoping in Uriah's drunken state, he would go home and be with his wife. Chemically impaired reasoning would do the job for him. However, Uriah slept on the lawn with the rest of David's house staff. Uriah had more integrity when he was drunk than David did when he was sober. Hear me. Sin can be more stupefying than liquor. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, David wrote, set Uriah on the forefront of the hardest fighting. And then draw back, and he will be struck down and die. Someone had to die. And David was unwilling to order his own death, so he orders Uriah's. This is all part of the attempt to screen himself from exposure. He wants to keep his sin hidden. 
David hands Uriah the small scroll, maybe with a little seal on it. Go back to the battle and give this to Joab. Stephen Davy says, don't miss the fact that, you, that the only way this cover-up will work is if Uriah refuses another temptation to open the letter and read it himself. Uriah carries his own death warrant. Beloved, don't ever be surprised at what seems to be disproportionate complications that flow from one sin. Don't ever be surprised at what seems to be disproportionate complications that flow from one single sin. David's sin is compounding. It's leading to wider and wider sin. David has actually now taken on the role of Saul, ordering the death of one of his faithful soldiers. David's been on the other end of these orders in the past. David is masterminding a murder. He's engineering an execution. He's a cold-blooded killer plotting murder. This is a rapid series of escalating events. But that's not surprising because sin never leaves you where it finds you. David is okay if others suffer or even die as long as his sin is covered. At all cost, cover the sin. What's in the letter? Church, what was in that letter? Murder, he wrote. Uriah hands the letter to Joab and Joab opens it and reads silently. He looks up and his eyes meet with Uriah's eyes. Without showing a single emotion of shock, without a moment's hesitation, Joab calmly says, go on, I'll handle this. Joab knew something was off with the several nights furlough granted to Uriah. It all clicked when he read the letter. David's been with Uriah's wife. And now he needs to cover his tracks. That's my king. That's also my uncle. I will protect the family at all costs. David wants this murder to happen on the battlefield. Just advance on the enemy and send Uriah first and then everyone draw back and just watch him die. <laughs> well, Joab is a military man and he knows this isn't going to work. That's way too obvious. He would lose the respect of his men. Plus, the mighty men will not let one of their own die without lifting a finger. Joab realizes David's plan is full of holes, so he improves on it. His improvement allowed for more deaths than just Uriah's. Verse 18. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? If he says all that, messenger, then you say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Joab sends this messenger with the, with the full report of the battle. 
Joab knows he's carried out the spirit of the letter, but he hasn't followed it to the T. Other people died. He fears the king will fly into a rage. So, so Joab imagined David saying, you dumb, dumb. Have you not studied Judges 9? That famous event where a soldier went too close to the wall and a woman was able to kill him by rolling a rock off. Timber splat. When you're laying siege against a city, you don't get close to the wall, too close to the walls. It's sieging 101. The enemy will attempt to draw you close to the wall and then he will pound you with arrows. Now Joab, let's just imagine this whole conversation. This conversation didn't happen. He, he's anticipating the conversation. He's anticipating the king's reaction. That's why he says, when you finish reporting all the details of the battle to the king, should he become enraged at the poor tactical position we took, inform him that Uriah died. That's all he cares about. Verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Joab feared reprisal from the king because other men died, not just Uriah. The messenger boy feared the same thing. I mean, given David's track record for killing messengers that came with news of death, it happened in chapter 1, it happened in chapter 4. This messenger boy did not want to take his chances waiting to give the good news after David's angry reaction. He just went and led with Uriah. He did. No sin is without a victim in the end. Bathsheba isn't the only widow made from David's sin and cover-up. Sinning is never a victimless crime. Others are impacted. It's Satan's delusion that convinces you that your sin can be contained. Verse 25, David said to the messengers, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. This is a cold, callous response. The king says, tell Joab casualties happen. War is war and people die. Now redouble your efforts and take the city. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Was she in on the plan the whole time? Or was this a sincere mourning we don't know and we don't have time to figure it out. We need to get ready. There's a state funeral. Speeches and accolades will be showered on the dead and David will give each widow a folded Israeli flag. Bathsheba is in her black dress, black veil, and black high heels. She receives from the king the folded flag for a moment. Their eyes meet, and they both realize David just got away with it. Verse 27, and when the mourning was over, 
David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done, notice these three words, displeased the Lord. The appropriate grieving time for a widow was traditionally seven days. Some morning events went on for 30 days, like with Moses and Aaron, but this was likely seven days. And as soon as the seven-day mourning period was over, David brought Bathsheba to be his wife. They waste no time. Frankly, they can't afford to. Everybody can count to nine months. David's actions would have been interpreted as kindness on his part to a fallen soldier's widow. Isn't that perfect? How sweet. He breathes a sigh of relief. His sin has not found him out. Imagine the conversations. Oh, you two didn't wait long, did you? Pregnant on the honeymoon? That's right. But remember, church, just because sin runs its successive course does not mean God is going to ignore it. Even if your sin doesn't come out in this life, it will come out before the throne. There is a unique Hebrew pairing that I want to show you. In verse 25, David told Joab, do not let this matter displease you. And in verse 27, the narrator says, this matter displeased the Lord. David, it doesn't matter how you view your sin. It only matters how God views your sin. You can excuse it. God will not. Now, I've got some applications for you. But before we get to those, we need to touch on two quick issues. First, if David lived in our day, he would have given Bathsheba the day after pill or just sent her to have an abortion. That would have been cleaner and avoided the murder of Uriah. But it still would have been the murder of a baby. Just a body lying in the abortion clinic trash can instead of a body lying on the battlefield. Just because a baby is born from a sinful relationship, it doesn't make that baby worthless. That baby is a blessing. Second, I need to deal with a heated debate. Some of you are convinced this was a consensual affair. Others of you are convinced this was rape. Those who say it was forced believe that Bathsheba could not have said no. I mean, armed guards from the king show up to your house, you obey or die. They say this was a power rape. He was an authority and she could, she could not have refused. This position points out that the ceremonial bathing on the rooftop was not skinny dipping in a hot tub. Nowhere does it say she was fully unclothed. Some scholars contest she was not intending to be seen by the king. She's not trying to seduce him. She was not a willing participant in this. And I'm sentimental to that position. And it could be right. But I don't hold to it. I believe it was consensual. You say, are you trying to cover it up, Kyle? No. I hold to that position because when a rape does occur, just two chapters later, the narrator says it's rape. It was forced. In addition, 
The subject-object switch in verse 4 could be interpreted as consensual. I also don't see violence in the text like the case coming up in a few chapters. I thought this chart may be helpful. Those who hold to it being adultery, those who hold to it being rape. Adultery, Tim Keller, R.C. Sproul, Kiel and Delich. They, they actually go further than Keller and Sproul. They, they say that she should have refused the king because the king doesn't overrule the law. And then Gigi uh, Nickel even goes further. He's convinced she manipulated David his whole life. He, he's extreme. Um, Pyle, uh, P. Kyle McCarter holds to being adultery. John Calvin, Stephen Davey, Denny Burke. Those who say it was rape, Ryan Kelly, um, John Woodhouse, Nancy Guthrie, who is a, some of you ladies listen to her podcast, she's a lady speaker, uh, Paul Carter, and John Piper. Good people fall on both sides here. The reason is because the text isn't very clear on it. If it was clear, there'd be more agreement. My view is that it was a consensual relationship, that both are at fault. He could have and should have stopped it. She could have and, and, should, and, she could have and should have stopped it. I, 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 don't, I don't need to... I do want to emphasize that the text points out David's sin, not hers. That, that is the emphasis. So you probably heard sermons from this text, and it's like, Bathsheba! <laughs> uh, that's just not the emphasis. All right, the emphasis is on David! That's the emphasis. All right, it's on David. It's his, it's his sin. Now, so from my viewpoint, I'll give you some applications from that. Now, wh what are some applications we can pull away from this? We just walked through the story, and the story had headings. You may have caught some of them. A time for war. The royal voyeur, a one-night stand, the cover-up, murder he wrote. So from that, how about this? Application number one. A Christian can say no to any temptation. God has given him or her that ability. A Christian can say no to any temptation. God has given him or her that ability. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you, that you, that you, that you may be able to endure it. You possess the power through the Holy Spirit to stop looking at Bathsheba, to stop asking questions about Bathsheba, to stop inviting her over. This is not a story of one man's isolated sin. It's your story. You need to learn from it. David's heart is your heart. Martin Luther was once asked how he dealt with the problem of lust. And he answered by speaking about the importance of controlling your thinking. He said, I can't help if birds fly over my head. But I can stop them from building a nest in my hair. If you're a Christian, now, non-Christians, you're a slave to sin. I'll get to you later, all right? If you're a Christian, you've been given everything you need to resist temptation. You are not a slave to sin. The sin in the text is, of course, murder and adultery. But this principle is true of all sins. High schoolers, middle schoolers, you don't have to cheat on tests in school. 
Adults, you're not forced into dishonest business practices. You don't have to continue to nurse that grudge. Feed on fantasies of revenge. You can shut your lips and stop gossiping. You can stop wishing for someone else's life, coveting everything they show you on Instagram. You don't have to be enormously self-absorbed about how you look. The same gospel that possesses the power to save your soul possesses the power to help you stop these deeply ingrained sins. Every time you sin, you commit spiritual adultery on Christ. So what I'm saying is you don't have to keep stepping out on Christ. He's given you everything you need at home to stay faithful to him. It's application one. Application two. You will only be seduced by Bathsheba's beauty if you're not captivated by God's. Keep your heart hot for God. David Hegg, a pastor in Cali, relayed an interesting conversation he had with a man who claimed he couldn't stop his pattern of sleeping with his girlfriend, or any woman for that matter. He told the pastor, quote, My lusts are inevitable. Therefore, it's not my fault, especially since God has created me with such strong desires. I couldn't stop it. My lust was an irresistible force. Hegg interrupted this man and said, suppose I came into your room and caught you and your girlfriend as you were starting this irresistible process. Suppose I took out 10 crisp $100 bills and told you that if you stopped and took your girlfriend home, I'd give you this $1,000. The young man laughed and said, i take the cash. Oh, Hegg responded. What happened to that irresistible force of lust? And for the first time, he realized a very simple truth. One passion may seem irresistible until a greater passion comes along. You will only be seduced by Bathsheba's beauty if you're not captivated by God's. When you realize your body belongs to God, you're not going to hand it out like a piece of trash. Sexual desire is never satisfied. David is a good example of this. Sexual desire is never satisfied outside of God's created design. His forbidden lust. For, forbidden lust is like you dying of thirst while begging for salt. You can't be satisfied apart from God. At the heart of every sin, is this prayer. God, this is more beautiful than you. Which is exactly what David said. Application number three. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It says John Owen there. That's really just put Kyle Sharon. I taught John Owen that quote. Friends in high school. <laughs> be killing sin or it will be killing you. John Owen's famous for saying that. Unconfessed sin changes you, it kills you. 
Mark Dever says, sin always has small print. And, and scripture is a magnifying glass that helps you see the small print. The way of transgressors is hard, Proverbs says. And David amens. Make sure you deal with sin in its infancy. It's always easier to avoid temptation than to resist sin. It's always easier to avoid temptation than to resist sin. Martin Luther said something along the lines of, if your head is made of butter, stay away from the fire. Beloved, would you please listen to those who are telling you to be careful with social media and watching sexually explicit shows on TV? Men, you can learn to bounce your eyes off of visually stimulating female bodies. We don't need more Christians becoming a punchline to a joke and an embarrassment to the gospel. Daddy, your family's greatest need is your personal holiness. Wife, your husband's greatest need is your personal holiness. Single adults, honor the Lord by keeping intimacy within the bonds of marriage. Now, this text obviously deals with sexual sins, but it, it applies to every sin. Every sin. What is your secret sin? How do you hide it from others? How long have you been hiding it? Kill sin or it will kill you. Application number four, and this is the last one. God's king will one day live up to God's standards. Some of you non-Christians, you got to be asking, David is God's king? Wow! God made the wrong choice. No, friend. There's another king. Throughout this whole narrative, David has never seen anywhere but in his home. There was a war going on, and Jesus didn't stay home. He left his heavenly home and went to the battlefield of earth. Unlike David, he fought with his people and for his people. Uriah, Uriah, one day a king will not kill you, but will be killed for you. He will, like you, carry his own death warrant to the cross and there purchase your salvation. We need a king who is not just good most of the time, but all of the time. We need a perfect king. In this passage, David broke five of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false testimony, you shall not covet. Where David failed, Jesus succeeds. He's the commandment keeper. This is the gospel. You, like David, are a commandment breaker. You deserve hell. You deserve wrath. But God sent a king. He kept every command perfectly. And he did it in your place. Glory be his name. Let's stand and pray.
Father, what a text. What a text that reveals our hearts. Keep us pure in body and in heart. You are Lord, not only of our bodies, but of our heart. So we submit to your Lordship in every area of life. And we experience the joy, the joy that comes with obeying our Father.